This is Author Talk, presented by Author House, the leading provider of services to help authors publish, promote, and sell their books around the world. Author Talk is a show about new books and the authors who wrote them. It's an opportunity for prospective readers to hear directly from the writers, to hear what inspired them to write and publish, and to hear all the inside details about their books. Here is Author Talk with host Steve Jorgensen. The title of the book, Titus, the life story of Dr. Titus Plumeritis. And Titus joins us now on Author Talk. Hello, Dr. Plumeritis. Great to have you with us. Good morning, Steve. It's a pleasure to be on your show. Well, you've got an incredible life story, and that's the uh, really the focus of of your book, an autobiography. You've got a lot of experiences, exciting experiences uh, from sports and love and politics and compassion and inspiration. We're going to talk about a few of those, but. First of all, let's find out a little bit about yourself, uh, your roots, uh, where this all started, and and then we'll get into some of the details of your life that will point out some of the great principles that you believed in and how they've carried you through all your life. So uh, take us back, Titus. Okay, I will. First, uh, I'd like to say my my father immigrated to the United States when he was 35 years of age. And my mother immigrated when she was just an infant. And I was born in Lowell, Massachusetts. You've got to remember the day now because it does come into play several times throughout the book. It's September 6, 1929. And I was the third oldest of seven children. Came from the city of Lowell. It's a mill town. And it's a, it has a lot of history. It's probably, a, and I went to Lowell High School eventually. And that is the first integrated public school in the entire United States, so it's not a small school. And, of course, there you played football at 5'5 five, five and 155. Yes. Well, I, it's interesting how that all started because when I first got interested in football, I had to be just a little guy, probably six, seven years old. I think I was playing contact football when I was about seven or eight, and I – was at the South Common, which is a, a park in Lowell, only a, a hundred yards from where I was born and brought up on Gorham Street. And it's right now it's a, a government project. But however, it started back over there when uh, I had no fear of the bigger kids that were in the team. So when I went to high school, I was five five, weighed about 150, 155, and the coach said all alignment to the left and all the backs to the right. And I noticed that there was about 75% of the kids were in the backfield area, and just a few kids were in the line. And even any kind of a math student would know that you need seven linemen to form a team. So I went over with the linemen. And would you believe, as a freshman, I made the team at that size? I was probably <laughs> the, the smallest guard in the whole United States. Well, you had some, just some driving force within you. What, where did that come from? That driving force, that, that, that's a great term. I love it. And that has to be the inspirational motivation of this entire book. And it all started very back at a, in that young age. I remember going to the playground in the South Common. And there was, when there was no one else to play with, I'd go over to the baseball backstop, the big screen. 
and I put the ball down, and I said, I can get that ball over that screen. And I tried, and I tried. This went on for weeks, for months. Literally, it took me four years before I could kick the ball over that baseball backstop. And you've got to realize now that that backstop is 20 feet high. And they, actually, the goalposts, the crossbar on the goalposts are only 10 feet high. So that was really one outstanding accomplishment. And that was the beginning of a long train of driving force accomplishments throughout my life. Now let's talk about some specific things. Let's look at some life-threatening experiences that, uh, in fact, you know, anytime you have that kind of an experience, uh, it can ruin a person or it can drive them even further. Uh, tell us about some close calls. Well, that's a very interesting topic, uh, Steve. In this book, 600 pages, and there are six thrilling, dramatic close calls with death, and I instilled them in there chronologically. They were interwoven in there, and this is actually uh, a little bit of a dangling carrot, if you will, to keep the reader interested because you don't know when they're going to occur. And the first one starts back on page 11. I don't want to release all that information because they. I've got a couple of calls, emails from people that I don't even know. One is in Burlington, Vermont, and one was from Florida. They sent me emails, and they were telling me how they enjoyed reading the book from the beginning to the end, and they couldn't wait to find out when the next incident was going to come when I was having a little bit of trouble staying alive. So I think we'll let the readers find those points. When did you realize that education really pays off, that you know you were great on the football field, Sports is always seems to be put up on the pedestal, but you saw more than just sports. I'll tell you when that occurred, Steve. Uh, I was a, I, I would say I was an undisciplined child, except when I was on the football field or in a playground. And when I went into the paratroopers, I was 17 years of age. And once I went in there, there was a, seven tenets that were instilled in my mind and my body. And I believe that that is when the turnabout came on. And I, those seven tenets are very, very important. And they still remain with me. And every time I think that I'm getting to a point where I can't do it, I think about that. Because when I was in the paratroopers, there was a gentleman named Moskowitz. It's interesting how that name pops up to me, but that was his name. And he was on the front cover of Mr. America magazine. He had muscles coming out of his ears. He was a huge son of a gun. And I'm just a little guy, and I'm looking at him, and would you believe this was for the physical fitness uh, award for our paratrooper group? And he won every one of the muscle building, the, the chin-ups, the pull-ups, the rope climbing, the push-ups. He won those hand over for fist. But when it got to the speed and the, the agility and the rifle shooting, those all those elements came into place, and we came to the very, very final day where they put the two top people together, and he and I were the final two. And while we had all the little people cheering for me coming on the last leg, and I ended up overtaking him on the on the on the sprints. There was thirty yard sprints, and there was. Sprint, he had to run 30 yards, touch a post, come back. And by the time I did the seventh one, I had him beaten by a whole length. 
And with the overall time, I come in second, he came in 25th, and I ended up beating him. And I said, wow, if you ever <laughs> had a time in your life when you said this was literally impossible to beat this guy, and yet Titus beat him. And that element just carried on from time to time. So I would say it had to be those seven tenets in the paracoupers that really got him started. Why become a chiropractor? Well, when I was, my ultimate goal when I went to, I got a scholarship. I was Coach Riddick's first scholarship player. And I got a scholarship to Boston University. And when I was there, my ultimate objective was to become a football coach and an athletic director. And the job that was available, I did coach one season as a, as a backfield coach to get experience so I could get a head coaching job. And I was all geared up because I was the top dog to get this big coaching job that was head football coach, head baseball coach, in charge of intramural program. And the whole thing was $2,700 a year. At that time, that was a good job. That was one of the better jobs. And when the school committee chairman came out at 9 o'clock at night and said, you all can go home, there were seven candidates for the job, and I was the top poncho. He came out and said, you guys can leave now because the coach has reconsidered. Well, at that point, I put plan B into effect. I was already accepted as a chiropractic college out in California. And when I got hurt playing football at BU, I went to a chiropractor. He helped me with a back injury. And he's the one that kept telling me, Titus, you should go to chiropractic college. You'll be one of the best chiropractors in the country. And that's how, that's how that all started. And because of your leadership, you were able to bring some incredible improvements to the whole field. Well, yes, it, it, that's true. Uh, I, had to, I started in the state of New Hampshire where I said, we will make this an accredited state because uh, – at that time, New Hampshire had an old state law, never upgraded it, and it became a dumping ground for the non-accredited colleges and the non-accredited students. So this is where I was because when I first started my practice, I wanted to set up in Lowell, Massachusetts, my hometown. And in Massachusetts at that time, they were arresting chiropractors for practicing medicine without a license. So I opted to go to Pelham, which is only five miles from Lowell. It's right across the state line. So I came here with the intention of going back to Massachusetts once they passed the law. And then in 1966, I started in 59. In 66, they passed the law in Mass. But by that time, my four children had put their roots and their school friends, and we were pretty well settled here, so I decided to just enlarge my my building and my practice and we stayed here but at that point i said we want to make this an accredited state and that's when that part started and i tried year after year we'd get the law into the state house first i got my wife to run for the state representatives and she became the first state female representative in 230 years to get elected and she won against three republican candidates it was unbelievable. Then from there, we went to the governor's race because every time we get a law ready to pass, we'd get defeated by the Senate and the president, uh, governor, I'm sorry, because the element, the non-credit element, was deep-rooted in the state. And every time we tried to pass a law, they were also there too. So once this governor, Hugh Gallon, said to me, Titus, 
I wish you would give me your support. I was the chairman of the political act committee at that time. And I said, why should I support you? He said, because I am totally in favor of accreditation. And even if you don't support me, and if I should get elected, I will support accreditation. But if you support me and I get elected, I will hand carry that sucker through the Senate for you. And wow, we've never heard that kind of talk. So I took that message to my 100 chiropractors from the New Hampshire Chiropractic Association that were supporting accreditation, and I gave them that message. It wasn't easy because most of them were Republicans. But they said, Titus, I can't do it. I'm going to lose my business. I'd go out one week. I'd pound the sun in his lawn. I'd come back the next week. It's gone. I'd go pound in another one. So I got a bus, and I drove that bus 15,000 miles across the entire state of New Hampshire. And in order to get him elected on the final few days, I asked those 100 chiropractors to each write personal notes to their 100 best patients. I collected all those envelopes, and we went to the governor's office one week before the election, and we dropped 10,000 letters on his lap, all stamped and ready to be stuffed with his material. And that was the beginning of a great, great future for the state of New Hampshire because he got elected. He won a big, he was a big underdog. And he got elected, and the very first thing he said in front of the uh, first celebrating party he had it was, if I had two Titus Plumeritises, I'd run for president. And boy, I'll tell you, <laughs> he was, he kept his word. The very first order of business, he said he wanted to, he went before the council, he said, I, I want to nominate Dr. Titus Plumeritis, the chairman of the board of examiners. Then he says, now I want to elect him. They said, you have to wait two weeks. You can't <laughs> elect him and nominate him on the same day. He said, well, the nomination is closed. <laughs> he insisted on waiting. He, he put me in there. And the very first order of business, he called a meeting with the, secretary, with the Secretary of State, the Attorney General, and the Commissioner of Education. And that's how we started, and we made it a, an accredited state. Well, what a story, and just exemplifies really your whole life. Uh, you have these driving elements of your life. You call them, there's 15 of them. They're throughout your book, these incredible, uh, disastrous, close calls as well that you've mentioned. Uh, this book is going to inspire everyone. And Titus uh, Plumeritis, of course, you've never been kidded about your name, have you? No, I haven't. <laughs> Let me just reiterate now. This all started with my wife. She's a lovely gal, and I dedicated my book to her. Her name was Claire Evett Plumeritis, and her dad was a professional boxer. He had 105 professional fights, and she is a dynamo. She's smaller than I am. She's four foot ten, and she weighs 98 pounds. And like I said, she was the first female legislator to get elected, and she's got the same spunk as her dad. She would take crap from nobody. <laughs> and the governor just loved her. He would say to her, Claire, come in my office, would you please? Everybody here is trying to break my chops. And you are so, you're so good to look at. And you're so helpful to my cause. And it just, I, I can't say enough. I just think this book is going to be the best inspirational story of any book that's out there on the market. 
Well, thank you so much, Titus, for sharing a little bit of your book with us. Uh, the title, of course, is Titus, the life story of Dr. Titus Plumeritis. Tell us how to get your book. I'll tell you how you can get my book through most of the media. You can get it from Amazon.com. You can get it from Brands & Noble. What I'd like you to do is have your audience know that I just got my webpage up. It's www.titusplumeritis.com. And I have formed a Plumeritis Family Foundation. So $40 check that's tax deductible, I will send them an autographed personalized copy. And that includes the postage for $40. Fantastic, Titus. Thank you so much for being with us on Author Talk. Thank you, Steve. I enjoyed it very much. You're listening to Author Talk. We'll be back right after these messages. Hi, everybody. This is Pete Six of Beatles and Beyond. Why don't we all come together and hear some of the tracks off the latest Beatles release on this radio station. Why don't you look up the schedules on this radio station and join me and Beatles listeners everywhere to hear the latest releases from the Beatles on Beatles and Beyond with Pete Dix. Girlfriend It is on Toginet. Thursdays at 10 a.m. Eastern, 11 a.m. Central, with your hosts, Patty Wyatt and Lisa Jernigan. This show is your chance to share, learn, laugh, and connect with other women. The girlfriended principle was born out of loss. Lisa had recently had her mother pass away from cancer, and my mom um, was murdered. A man just walking into a room and started a 23-second shooting spree. I think one of the things we both realized going through those tragedies is that you can be extremely okay and be extremely sad. Check out girlfriended.com. And then be a part of Girlfriended, the radio show, Thursdays at 10 a.m. Eastern, 11 a.m. Central. You know, your boyfriend or, or your husband or whatever, they don't totally understand that emotional side to a woman like another woman does. And I think that's so important just to mm-hmm. have somebody that you go, she gets me. Check out the website, girlfriended.com. Don't miss Girlfriended with Patty Wyatt and Lisa Jernigan, Thursdays at 10 a.m. Eastern, 11 a.m. Central on toginet.com. Welcome back. To Author Talk, brought to you by Author House, helping authors publish, promote, and sell their books around the world. The title of the book, I Can Relate to That, a toolbox for life's journey, and the author is Dr. Linda Bird Howard, and Linda joins us now on Author Talk. Hello, Linda. Hi, Steve. How are you today? Well, I'm doing great, and we're going to all be doing greater after we listen to you recount some of the crazy things that have happened to you along the way, which is rare for a psychologist to share, wouldn't you say? You're darn right. (laughs) (laughs) So you're brave and courageous. I don't know if people are really human beings, but they don't smile a lot, and they don't often talk about themselves at all. 
Well, it's important because you have obviously gathered a lot of experiences along the way, and that's one of the reasons that you call this a toolbox for life's journey. Right. And in that, you've got uh, four different areas that you cover about the journey and about control and uh, taking responsibility and and about love. And a, a great part of this is let's laugh at ourselves, right? Oh, my gosh. Absolutely. Absolutely. Because, you know, we are so funny, which is exactly why people like uh, Chris Rock and Robin Williams are hysterical. They, they, they talk about themselves and we all relate to that. So let's go back. Uh, let's go back when I guess some of the motivation for this book. When did this all come about? Well, um, let's see. It's, you know, the first thing that comes to mind is you know there was a uh, a movie with um, oh gosh, what's Steve uh, Martin? Where he starts off by saying, "I was born a black child." <laughs> <laughs> But that's not how it came about, but that's what popped into my mind. Um, what, how it came about was that most of my life I was asking, who am I and what am I doing here? And most of my life is, um, well, you know, I wrote a for my uh, 60th birthday that I actually sang as a hip-hop song. And um, I think probably a good way to begin in talking about how this all came about was to read a little bit of the poem. Is that okay? That'd be great. Okay. It was the 7th of March in the year 47 that a baby came down to Brooklyn from heaven. I had a blanket of hair and I was like an ape, and they covered my carriage so folks wouldn't gape. I'm so ugly, I thought. See that unibrow there? I have a mustache and legs that are covered with hair. In a schoolyard of shixes, I was one hairy Jew who just didn't fit into that liverwurst crew. <laughs> I was glad when we moved to a more Jewish stage, but I'd never seen kids dressed like that at my age. By grade five, they were wearing chiffon scarves and stockings. They had Training bras, jewelry, and dates to go shopping. They bought school clothes at Saks, and they stopped Bon Teller, whereas I was an S-Klein and frequent dweller. How I begged for what they wore. One pink papagallo that I can swoon over, Mom, won't make me shallow. But my fate had been sealed, and I felt so left out. Till the day I found bleach and breast started to sprout. I learned very quickly what beauty could reap. The life changed in a moment. The price was too steep. I felt pressure to be all that others saw in me. Was it only for beauty men wanted to win me? Who was I really but people's creation? Adulation for looks just brought devastation. That's all I'm going to read to you for now. But um, it, it really, it was, well, actually, I'll go to the next part. There were hard times ahead, but I couldn't have known that the struggles I'd face would bring clarity home. When my own strength was called for, I did what was needed. Painful times taught me lessons, which finally I heeded. I thought quite a bit about decisions I've made, from the people I've left to the places I've stayed. From my present perspective, it all was just right. What I thought were mistakes are what showed me the light. It was I who had done it to me all along. All my dancing had been to an unworthy song. And as quick as a wink, things began to improve as the universe opened its grooviest groove. <laughs> and I won't tell you any more, because that's the main uh, idea the book is about knowing what your issues are. One of them for me was being left out. And um, a big part of this book is about how important it is to know what your issues are because if you don't, you're thinking the world is doing it to you. And nobody's doing it to you. How you perceive the world is exactly how you come to create it. 
Have any idea what I'm talking about? Exactly, and you're so open. I mean, you have admissions of drug use, lousy parenting, low self-esteem, and, <laughs> and as you say, even insane relationships, and that's just oh to name God. a few. Well, that's very true. I mean, my parents were, um, you know, as I, as I said, my mom was somebody, um, you know, who thought she had birthed a chimpanzee through a, a blanket over my carriage so people wouldn't think she robbed a zoo. And she was <laughs> like the um, totally beige version of Talbot's, you know, the store. And I was like the kaleidoscope version of Betsy Johnson on acid. Um, <laughs> needless to say, it wasn't only my outfits that clashed. And uh, my dad, you know, was somebody who was a brilliant self-made guy, the eldest of five kids, uh, parented by immigrants who depended uh, on him to support a family of seven. Um, and um, he, you know, I guess most people of the Depression era never woke up at 10 a.m. and asked themselves, who am I, or what's my purpose? Right. They knew that their purpose was to eat. And I, on the other hand, was born with those questions in my head, and I continued to ask them throughout most of my life. So I remember um, showing up at my parents' house when I was 23 and severely anorexic in red and white feet pajamas and a white hat to hide my dirty hair looking like a funky Q-tip. And uh, I said, Daddy, I was crying. When he answered the door, who am I? So he looked at me like I was a strange visitor, visitor from another planet. And after a few minutes, every the problem solver, my dad said, wait here. And he came back with a phone book. He looked up my name and he pointed to it. <laughs> See, here you are, Linda Howard. You're Linda Howard and you live at 192-04B71 Crescent. What's the problem? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, what's the problem? There you are. <laughs> you exist. Um, so I, I really was, I think I just came into this world with the question, who am I? What am I doing here? And um, what happened was that ultimately things got so bad. I finally sort of had gotten my life together um, after much ado. This was my third husband um, that we're talking about now. I had gone through two um, pretty bad divorces. And my third husband um, was the straightest guy in the world. And I basically, I thought, you know, if I marry him, I'll become a straight person. Um, and um, it didn't happen exactly that way. I ran off with a drug dealer. and um, But after that, I met my husband in a 12-step program. We got married, and things were great. I was married to him for 14 years. We had two great kids. And then one day he committed suicide. Oh, my goodness. Yeah, wow. and, you know... I had done, I'd gone through my whole life waiting for those moments that were so good. And after he committed suicide, leaving the family stunned, I had two young children. My son tried it, and my daughter tried it, and they tried it again. And they, they were constantly in theatric hospitals. And my son, who was, I think, like about 14, 15 at the time, I would say about 13, I guess, he, um, he also became a juvenile delinquent, and I remember Baker acting him and thinking, you know, what kind of a mother does a thing like this? Baker acting is when you have somebody committed against their will. Um, and, uh, you know, it was just, I hit bottom. I totally hit bottom. My in-laws, who I had been very close to, of course, blamed me. Um, my husband had left a note blaming me for everything in the world. Um, and uh, he was diagnosed with a bipolar disorder, but never let anybody know that. And um, he had been medicating himself, taking 
probably 30 pills a day of all different crazy sorts. And uh, I did not know that. And um, it's, you know, you think, how could I not have known that? I'm a psychologist, for God's sake. But the thing about that is that we notice what we're looking for. And I was looking for him to be a great husband that I knew, you know, the person I knew. And so I just closed my mind to all the evidence to the contrary. Um, and, uh, you know, then one day it just happened. So what happened to me was um, I was driving home from, I didn't know how I was going to make it through another day, to be honest. I just felt like there was no possible thing that could happen that could make my life better because I was so overwhelmed. Um, I had lots of learning disorders, by the way, including ADD, which made you know this whole thing that much more difficult to me because I was extremely anxious when I had to do two things at once. And as anybody with kids knows, you're always doing like six things that you're juggling, you know, when you have a couple of kids. And here, everything was going down the tube. So I was very anxious most of the time. I just didn't feel like I could get through another day. And... Um, I had an epiphany, which was the strangest thing. Um, I One morning, um, it was, I think it was like um, 4.20 in the morning. I just jumped out of bed, and I went to my computer, and I am not a computer person. My hands flew over the keys, and within minutes, I was reading a letter that seemed to come through me from someone or something outside of myself. And it said that obstacles had been put in my path as a part of my divine plan, which, by the way, I am not a religious person and never have been. Um, it said some uh, of the things that were put in my way were thoughts, some time constraints, some people, and that the pain existed as lessons to be transformed and transmuted into the teachings for others, for I and others are one and the same. And while the letter said the pain was behind me, it also said that it had existed to connect me to all humanity. Um, and I read that I now had the intellect, the experience, and the fortitude to enter the second phase of my life in which I was to be, and I quote, a teacher, a healer, a guide. It told to allow peace, which had been a stranger to me, to wash over me, and that I was to bless everything and everyone that brought me to this place. And from that day on, I, I, for three days after that, I was stunned. Um, I just could not understand what happened to me. Nothing like that ever happened to me before. And I realized at that point that I was being guided. And as I put together everything from the letter, what it was really saying to me was that I should use all of those things happening to me, including my, I had a master's degree in English. I used to teach English, so I'm a writer um, and, and my you know, degree in psychology and all those things that happened to me, I should find a way to put them together and um, to assist people in what they were going through. And that's exactly how this book came about. Well, your book is broken down into four parts uh, on your journey, part one, part two on responsibility, part three on control, part four on love. And of course, love, it's all about how to get it, how to keep it, and how to make it thrive. So you've gone through, been in the trenches, and now you sound like you're a woman that is a free woman. 
I really am. You know, just the other day, I was thinking, I, the first thought when I, that when I opened my mind, uh, my eyes in the morning and my mind was, I'm free. I'm free. I mean, it's, if you would have told me that at any point in my life, uh, you know, prior to maybe 15 years ago, I would have thought you're crazy. I'll never be free. But it's so astounding that I learned certain things that enabled this to happen to me. And they're simple things. They really are. I mean, um, everybody that I've ever told, everybody has had something to do with four major issues. Um, As you said, who am I? They've had problems with responsibility, taking responsibility for everything in their lives, not blaming other people or their circumstances, uh, problems with control, who doesn't have issues with control, and, um, and love. Everybody seems to have problems in those areas. And there wasn't a single time I was listening to clients that I didn't think, oh, my God, I can relate to that. You know, sometimes I wanted to jump out of my seat. Um, and what happened was every time I told a uh, you know, psychologists don't really talk about themselves, as you said, but every time I told a, a story about my life, which was very infrequently, what I discovered was the person remembered not just what we were talking about, but they remembered the story uh, almost verbatim. And so I realized that by putting my experiences with, I guess, what you would call the lessons in the book, um, people would relate to the, my experiences and remember the lesson. And um, in addition, I call it a toolbox for life's journey because I actually give people um, something visual, uh, uh, pictures of tools that they can use. Um, because when people visualize things, they kind of, it, it kind of stamps in the lesson. So there are three things to help people remember. That's um, the tool. For example, uh, um, I give mittens for one of the sections because, so that you can't point the finger of blame at anyone. Um, so <laughs> mm-hmm. when that comes up, you know, you'll either think of the story I tell or the, or the mittens and remember not to do that. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, I don't know. I'm going on and on. Well, that's wonderful. And and the whole point of your book is just summed up in the title. I can relate to that. (laughs) I mean, that's what this is about because you have shared so much of your innermost uh, feelings and, of course, your real experiences. I can relate to that. A toolbox for life's journey. The author is Dr. Linda Bird Howard. Linda, tell us how to get your book. Oh, my goodness. Well, you can get my book on Amazon.com and, or BarnesandNoble.com. Um, and uh, after you've read the book, you can go to Amazon.com and leave me a review. Um, that's probably the best thing to do. They, it's not, you know, they don't take new writers in bookstores anymore. Um, everything is done online. So, right. Linda, thank you so much for being with us on Author Talk. It is my pleasure. I hope that people will read the book and that they'll really, it will save them a lot of misery because I really think that it can. It's simple and easy to read and it will help them discover what their issues are so they'll know what they can be responsible for and how they can um, exert control in life. And once they do that, it will be a breeze. And all I can say is I can relate to that. (laughs) Great job. Thank you, Linda. Thanks a lot. You're listening to Author Talk. We'll be back right after these messages. 
Have you been laid off, fired, downsized, right-sized, or re-engineered out of a job? Are you unemployed or anticipate that possibility? Then tune in for Successfully Unemployed, hosted by Alan Sherwood, MBA, President of Sherwood Consulting Service. Successfully Unemployed will provide you a hope-filled and comprehensive approach to the job search process from an author who's experienced it all. Alan and his guests will cover all dimensions of a job search, physical tasks, mental attitude, emotional health, even one spiritual perspective. All must be integrated in order for a person to be successfully unemployed so they can then be successfully employed. This show is designed to help you move forward from job loss to finding or creating more fulfilling work. For more on Alan Sherwood, MBA, and the show, check out his website, SuccessfullyUnemployed.com. Then join us for Successfully Unemployed with Alan Sherwood, MBA. Thursday nights at 8, 7 Central here on Toginet.com. Is there more living for you to do? Yes. Start living inspired. Be here for Living Inspired with Trisha Goyer. Thursday afternoons at 4, 3 p.m. Central on toginet.com. Trisha will dig deep into topics that matter most to women, inspiring women to make a change in their own lives and to make a difference in the world, and maybe even deep within their own hearts. Trisha is a wife, mom, speaker, family expert, and author of 24 books. For more information on Trisha and Living Inspired, go to her website, trishagoyer.com. That's T-R-I-C-I-A-G-O-Y-E-R.com. Trisha's vision is to be the voice of hope and possibility for women of all ages. Her intention is to serve ordinary women by encouraging extraordinary things with God's help. Trisha expresses real life, real hope for real women. Is there more living for you to do? Yes. Start living inspired. Living inspired with Trisha Goyer. Thursday afternoons at 4, 3 p.m. Central on toginet.com. Welcome back to Author Talk, brought to you by Author House. Helping authors publish, promote, and sell their books around the world. The title of the book, Because I Believed in Me, My Egyptian Fantasy Came True. And the author is Randy D. Ward. And Randy joins us now on Author Talk. Hello, Randy. Hi, how are you? Well, you are a world traveler, and because of your focus recently on Egypt which most people would say, why would you want to go to Egypt because of all the problems there? But you have literally, it's kind of changed your whole life, hasn't it? Yes, it has. I have joined Facebook after I retired from teaching in 2008 and started meeting Egyptian friends online. A lot of them were archaeologists and um, people that were involved in the antiquities, which I'd always found fascinating since I had traveled there in 1996 on a tour. But I started becoming more interested in the people themselves and the antiquities. And I had an invitation in May of 2011 to come to a wedding and stay with a young friend. But I never got to meet. This is in my book. But when I got there, I was able to meet a lot of the new friends I had met on Facebook. And I was actually offered a job um, to teach at a language school called Spread Your English. So in November of 2011 through February 6th, I taught at this language school, and the experience of living as an Egyptian in uh, during the second revolution, by the way, that started a week after I got there, has changed my life forever. So this adventure story has turned into a love story. Yes, it is a love story of Egypt, because I fell in love with the culture, I fell in love with the people, 
I learned to appreciate Islam, and as a Christian woman, I knew very little, even though I had been studying it a little bit because of my friends. I wanted to be more knowledgeable about their faith because they were felt so strongly about it and wanted me to learn about it. So, But living there and listening to the call to prayer five times a day and actually having the experience to go to a mosque with one of my former students, Samar Adol, and pray as an Egyptian woman was also a life-changing experience for me. Um, I actually cried at the end of it. And I didn't understand any of the prayers because they were in Arabic, so you know it was definitely um, very motivating. (laughs) You see and sense, and now because of all your experience, obviously you've experienced so many misunderstandings and negative attitudes about Muslims. Yes, I have. Uh, yes, uh, most people think of them as terrorists, but Muslims and terrorists are hand in hand, and this is not true. If you study Islam, and I'm not trying to be an expert or preach the religion, uh, but if you study that, they do not condone violence, okay? They are a peace-loving people, and so they're just as upset when Muslims do awful things, just as Christians do awful things, um, because they live their life around God, even more than Christians. Everything... I mean, their life revolves around God all day long. They have to take five times out of the day to pray. It's not just like going to church on Sunday, as Christians do. Their holy day is Friday, but every day to them is a holy day. And so when you're around them, you feel, even in their language, they use words like Alhamdulillah, which means thank God, or Inshallah, which means God willing. Anytime they meet you, their whole conversation has the word God in it constantly. So their, their world revolves around God, and they live to try to please God and, and have a good life. A major theme in your book, don't dream big, dream bigger. Now, this is something you try to uh, advocate with your new Egyptian friends as well. Yes, I always had taught this to my young American friends or students because I had taught for 37 years, grades 7 through 12. Through 12, you know, the teenage years, and they always need a lot of motivation. But when I went to Egypt, these young students, a lot of them were college students, and some of them were professionals like engineers and doctors and lawyers and teachers that wanted to improve their English so they could probably get international jobs. They were so distraught and so discouraged by what was going on in Egypt. And if, if nothing else that I taught them in the three months, I think I did teach them to believe in themselves because I hear this a lot when I speak to them on Facebook or online. Anytime there's a problem, they go, I believe, Randy, I believe. So yes, I think believe is one of the most powerful words in the English language. If you don't believe in yourself, who will? And I've always believed that I can do anything if I work hard enough. And look what I've done. I've written a book after 37 years of teaching, (laughs) and I've gone to Egypt to teach. What woman gets to do that? You have to believe that you can do that, you know? Definitely, definitely. And, of course, not only writing the book, but filling it with photographs. Yes. Listen, those photographs were a big problem, too. And I have to tell you a funny story about this, too. Um, Forty-eight of those pictures should not be in the book. There are 153 altogether. My publisher, and even my son, who is the art director for Reader's Digest in Germany, okay, told me, Mom, the resolution on these pictures is too bad. They were taken with cam photos or photo or um, camera phones, and you cannot use them. You ready? A 15-year-old Egyptian genius, who's now one of my best friends, googled this and fixed the 48 pictures, and they are in my book. And you cannot tell the difference. <laughs> <laughs> so anything is possible if yeah. you believe, right? <laughs> yes, exactly, exactly. So 
A so lot I dedicated of... the book to him. I dedicated the book to many, many people, <laughs> including the two people that named my title, because I believed in me. Was named by Radva, and my Egyptian fantasy came true. Was named by a young man named Emo. Both of them are Egyptians. I had a Facebook contest, and they won. <laughs> well, this literally is a Facebook book. It is. Without Facebook, I would not have gone to Egypt again, and I would not have taught in Egypt. So everything revolves around Facebook. It really does. So I know people laugh about Facebook sometimes, but it it changed my life and caused me uh, to be able to meet all these amazing people that are now like my family. And to realize as well that we need to be more open-minded about different cultures. Absolutely. Uh, This is one of my themes in my book. I want people to, if they travel or if they meet even somebody from a different culture, to be more open-minded. I think many of us are closed-minded. We think that our lifestyle is the only way to live. And I learned that it may not be the best. Uh, We're always so busy and crazy as Americans that we don't really have time for our friends sometimes and not even time for our family sometimes. But if you go to Egypt and some of these countries... Everything revolves around their family. Um, If I needed help at any time, all I had to do was put on Facebook, I need somebody to come and help me. I would get five phone calls. At least I'll be right there. What do you need? They would drop anything to help. And I learned a a lot from them that, you know, um, family is more important than money and, and work and all this. And I love that about them. And when you leave America and you go into a foreign land, uh, we take so much for granted here. Your experiences in Egypt, obviously, all of a sudden, you were living a different lifestyle. Definitely. No car, having to ride the metro, take taxi cabs, not understanding the language and having to figure out what that can is. It's in Arabic (laughs) at the grocery (laughs) store, Um, trying to figure out their money because they don't even use the number system that we would use. They have this unusual Arabic number system. Um, I had to learn everything. I had to learn to ride the metro. I had to learn to communicate with taxi cab drivers that didn't speak English. It was a whole different way. And, it, and at times it was difficult. I won't say that every moment was pleasant, but I'm the type of person that I never think that I can't succeed at something. So I kept working at it and working at it and watching and learning from my friends. And eventually... I could do anything by myself. At the end of the three months, I had become an Egyptian woman because I had to, to survive and be happy, and I was happy. And you must have had some, uh, you know, some fears at times, especially when you could hear the gun battle not far from your apartment. Yes, um, I was, lived in Garden City, which is about three blocks from the American Embassy, but this is also three blocks from Tahrir Square, the famous square where all the protesting and violence occurred. And one night in December, about a half a block from my house, literally, I listened to gunfire for six hours on a Friday night and listened to the deaths of 12 people and 120 people get injured. I heard them chanting. I heard the gunfire. I heard the tear gas bombs go off. It was a really terrible night, but I can honestly say I was not frightened. I don't know why I wasn't frightened, but I wasn't. I was just very sad. And the next morning, it was quiet. The street was all barbed was all closed off with barbed wire. There was no one there. And I got up and went to my school and taught for eight hours that day. I was a mess, I admit. I hadn't had any sleep. But I picked myself up like an Egyptian woman and went on and went to school and taught my students. I had to. And you were featured on local television there? 
No, not TV, but I was in two newspaper articles. One of the newspaper articles was actually written by one of my students, who was a journalist at SYE, and I had her at SYE. Uh, the other one was from a newspaper, and to be honest with you, I'm not that proud of, because they misquoted me and made it all about anti-Morrissey. The paper is very anti-Morrissey, and so they made it sound like I was against their president, which was not true, but, you know, but I was still in the paper. I was supposed to be in an Al Jazeera, as an interview, they called me, but because of the second revolution or the third revolution <laughs> in Egypt, which is now going on, they had to cancel the interview. But I did do a lecture at my school. I'm opening a school with two Egyptians uh, who are partners of mine uh, and were former students called Rise Up, and we're currently teaching English and German. And what's going to make this school different from other language schools is that we're going to teach it with love, because as a good teacher. I believe that you can't just get out knowledge. You have to show that you love your students. And so my partners and I will do everything in our power to show love to our students and meet their needs because it will be young adults, again, pretty much like SYE, but we will try to meet the needs of these students so that they can get jobs that are um, appropriate for their level of intelligence and education. So it's called Rise Up, and that's our theme, Rise Up. Make yourself better. Dream big. Dream bigger. These are, this is our motto. So the people really believe that they can eventually get their freedom? Yes. This is the reason they're fighting so hard and dying for it. So many times I hear, I'm willing to die for my country. And they really believe this and they really mean this, uh, which is sad to me because they need to be the future, not be part of the past with the, you know, with the ending of their lives. But they are all willing to do this, and uh, you have to admire them for that. Even though I disagree with the way they're trying to do this, I have to admire that they will fight for whatever they feel is best for them and their country. I have a famous friend named Mustafa Abu Hussein. He's an archaeologist. He's 41, 42 now, and he's one of the revolutionary leaders of Egypt, and he has spent the last two years of his life fighting for the freedom of, of his country and the young people. He's an amazing man, like like so many of my friends that are protesters and spend so much of their life trying to work for their country and their families. Very difficult for most Americans to identify with that kind of uh, determination and devotion. Yes, and passion. Don't forget the word passion. These are very passionate people. They're very emotional people, um, sometimes too emotional. Um, they really feel so much, and they express it so strongly. That was, that was one of the things I had to get used to. Um, for instance, if I was busy and I didn't talk to them on Facebook, they get so upset, you don't like me anymore, or you, you know, what's going on? I said, well, I'm just busy, but no, I'm here for you. You have to talk to me. Mm. Their passion is amazing, <laughs> but sometimes overwhelming, you know? <laughs> mm -hmm. so. And you will be going back? Uh, yes, I will be going back, but I'm, I'm here in the States now to promote uh, my book, of course, and I want to do what I can to make Egypt change in the, the public eye. I, don't, I want the tourists to return because they need to see not only the antiquities, but they need to feel the passion of these people and learn about this amazing culture. And I do have another project. I have several projects, in fact. Um, I have a friend uh, named Max who's Egyptian who's going to try to reforest Africa with a, a tree called the Moringa tree. It's called the Miracle Tree by 
many scientists because it has no side effects. And if you lived on a deserted island and had nothing else to eat but the moringa tree, it has 92 nutrients and it's been used for 300 diseases by the ancient early uh, Indians in India. Uh, you could survive on this tree. So he is growing these trees on his, on his farm that he calls the Jesus Moringa Farm. In fact, he's a Muslim, but he named it the Jesus Moringa Farm because after his death, he will leave this, this farm to the Coptic Christian Church. He, like me, wants to unite the Muslim and non-Muslim world in peace and love. And so um, he hopes one day, with my help as an American, to unite uh, the world by having university students come to Egypt and plant these trees. So he wants it to, the name of his site is World Peace Forest Africa. That's his Facebook site. And uh, he does this as nonprofit. He's not making many money from this. But this is his passion to help the world by reforesting it and uniting young people in peace and love. And I think it's amazing. And I must help him. We've been listening to Randy D. Ward. She is the author of her book, Because I Believed in Me, My Egyptian Fantasy Came True. Randy, tell us how to get your book. Okay, well, there's lots of places. Strangely enough, I just found it on eBay, which kind of delighted me, I have to admit. Um, a, a bookseller in the U.K. is selling it for twice as much as it is the hardback in the United States. I hope he does well, and if he doesn't, I'm selling my book too cheaply. <laughs> <laughs> but it's also on authorhouseofcourse.com. It's on um, uh, amazon.com. You can get it in Barnes & Noble. Uh, there are lots of other. Even Sears is selling it, I saw. I was trying to look at some of the sites. So pretty much most websites will have it, but of course Amazon and Author House are the main ones. Thank you, Randy, for being with us on Author Talk. Thank you so much. It was enjoyable. Thank you so much, Steve. Bye-bye.